Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Today's August 10th, 2022, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host. Hi, I'm Karen with Boston Red Cloaks. And we're super excited today to welcome Mara Dolent. Hello, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be on Boston Red Cloaks Radio. And you are stepping off the campaign trail right now where you're running for governor's council. So I know we're going to unpack that for listeners, put on your seatbelt. If this is a new office where you may or may not have voted for someone before, you will go into this election and this voting booth with a whole bunch more information. Karen. Yes. What is the governor's (laughs) council? Governor's councilors are the most consequential, least known elected officials in Massachusetts. They have the final say in who our judges are, who serves on our parole board, and who gets a commutation or a pardon. Folks are nominated by the governor, but they must have the approval of the governor's council before they can assume the positions for which they've been nominated. So it's a very powerful, very important position. And how many people are on the council? There are eight governor's councilors. So each district is large because it's an eighth of Massachusetts. So my district is District 3. It goes from Boston all the way up to Burlington and all the way west out to Marlboro. So the council, again, for listeners, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about how I may or may not elect the person who's in the governor's council in another area, but they're going to play a role in what happens for me in the state, because all of you have a say in who gets approved and appointed as judges. Is that right? That's right. All governor's counselors vote on all nominations. So even though I'm running for District 3 to represent the people of District 3, I would vote on nominations for people who will be placed in courts all over Massachusetts. Okay, so listeners, don't turn off just because you don't necessarily live in Bill Rico or Concord. Or Newton, Arlington, Waltham, Wellesley. It's, this district is huge. It's huge. How does the process uh, play out, the process of nominations? There is something called the Judicial Nominating Committee. There are 21 positions on the Judicial Nominating Committee, and the governor appoints people to that position. And they receive applications and evaluate them, and then they make recommendations to the governor for folks that they think should be nominated, and it's up to the governor to decide whether to go ahead and nominate them. And then you vote on the nominations. Right. So the governor's counselors vet them. I will, of course, talk to every nominee and find out exactly of what their experience is and make sure that they're well qualified for the position. I certainly don't want political appointments. I know there's been an issue, particularly with the parole board where folks have been nominated without the necessary social sciences and psychology expertise. So we've got to make sure uh, that the folks that we're putting in these positions of extraordinary power have the expertise they need in order to do it well. Let's use the parole board as an example and just really spell it out for us so that for those of us it's newer, we totally get this. So there's a check and balance, it sounds like, between the governor saying, hey, I think these would be good people. And then Mm -hmm. it sounds like the governor's council is meant to be a group of people elected by us as voters. And then you get to have a role as a check and balance. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, the governor's counselors have the final say. In Massachusetts, we don't elect our judges, but we do elect the people who choose them. And I want folks watching and listening to this to know that I've been a public defender for 15 years. I've worked in Lawrence and Springfield and Worcester in our district courts, superior courts, and our juvenile courts. And since the United States Supreme Court established the right to court-appointed counsel for folks who can't afford to hire their own attorney with Gideon versus Wainwright in 1963, there have been 51 governor's counselors and none 
has been a full-time public defender. So I'm running to be the first full-time public defender on the governor's council. How it will, do you think your experience as a public defender will help you in your role? Well, it will certainly help restore balance. If you look at who is serving as judges in Massachusetts, listen to these numbers. The ratio of former prosecutors to former public defenders in our trial courts is two to one. If you go up to the appeals court, it's five former prosecutors to former public defenders. And if you look at the Supreme Judicial Court, it's four former prosecutors to one former public defender. So when Mike Barrett, our state senator, endorsed me, one of the things he said was, our judiciary is loaded with former prosecutors and Mara will help restore the necessary balance. As a public defender, I see the court system through the eyes of my clients and I understand the issues that we face there. And I'm running against someone who has never worked in our court system and so can't possibly understand things the way that I do. And that's actually why the state police endorsed me because even though they know we're on opposite sides, we're both on the inside. And I understand what folks are facing in the court system. And I think that's essential. And we're overdue to have a full-time public defender on the governor's council. What's the behind the scenes relationship that leads to having so many more prosecutors end up in these positions? I think that we have had uh, up until fairly recently, uh, a very sort of law and order mentality and elected officials used to like to be considered tough on crime. Well, I don't think we need to be tough on crime. I think we need to be smart on crime. And I think that as a result of you know, sort of this deeply entrenched culture, elected officials have tended to err on the side of favoring prosecution and therefore appointing more prosecutors because they didn't wanna be accused of being quote, soft on crime. But we need to look at how those policies are playing out. People think that Massachusetts is much more advanced with criminal justice than we are. We're one of the leading jurisdictions in the world for incarcerating people. We are incarcerating people of color at seven to nine times the rate of whites. We have the highest Latino incarceration rate in the country. It's not Texas, it's not Florida, it's Massachusetts. And one of the things that's most troubling uh, about what we've seen on the parole board is that one of the best mechanisms we have to correct systemic racism and those horrible imbalances with those numbers I just told you about is clemency, pardons and commutations. I mean, I'm a realist and I know that there are some folks who pose a danger and they need to be behind bars. And there are other folks who've committed a crime, they have a sentence, they need to be rehabilitated. But once they're done, and they're ready to go back to society, it makes no sense to spend $85,000 a year to keep them behind bars or twice as much if they're women. So can I give you a couple more numbers that are gonna blow you away? Absolutely. In the last, one of the joys of this campaign is educating people about this stuff. In the last 20 years, there have been 475 applications for a commutation. We've allowed three, hmm. three. Wow. Last year, the state of Connecticut allowed 1,045 pardons, over 1,000. Last year, we allowed zero. This year, we're up to three, but that's only when you include a victim of the Salem witch trials. Wow. So, I mean, our record, our record is shameful. So as governor's counselor, I will make sure that the nominees are supportive of clemency, commutations, and pardons as appropriate. These terrible numbers that I'm giving you are on the governor's council because they're the ones who approve judges and parole board members 
who are locking people up, people of color up 79 not times the rate of whites and, and not recommending people for commutations and pardons. And that's just wrong. How would, uh, how would being smart on crime affect um, people who are incarcerated uh, because of addiction? I'm really concerned about that issue. Um, frankly, it's personal to me because um, my sister passed away a couple of years ago from an alcohol use disorder. And I'm very familiar uh, with what family and loved ones go through with someone who's suffering from an addiction. We, when we talk about addiction, we all talk about beds and available treatments, but addiction, the opiate crisis is playing out in our courts every day. Our courts are on the front lines. And we just had record opiate overdoses and deaths in Massachusetts last year. We are not getting better. We are getting worse. And I see people taken into custody all the time for relapse. It's expensive, it doesn't work, and it can make recovery harder. So one of the things that I'm going to look for from all nominees is whether they understand the science of addiction and know how to work to support recovery. And let me tell you just how bad it got in Massachusetts. We had to have a lawsuit filed against the trial courts because there were judges in our drug courts who were prohibiting people from taking physician prescribed medication like Vivitrol and Suboxone and someone actually died. So this is a very serious problem in our courts and it falls again, it falls on the governor's council. That's why I say they're, so, they're the most consequential, least known elected officials in Massachusetts. Yeah, we've all been focusing on the school to prison pipeline as it's called. What are your thoughts? We've got to end it. I mean, I've represented a lot of children in juvenile courts, and I can tell you that um, most children do not have the capacity to really understand their circumstances and why they're having challenges, and they tend to blame themselves. So what I would also always talk about with my clients was just understanding that you know they need more support. And if they had more support, things would be different. And they loved hearing that and they needed to hear that. We've gotta be very careful of the judges that we are putting in our juvenile courts, just like our other courts. It's heavily skewed in favor of former prosecutors. We've gotta have folks, judges, who are more supportive of diversion. Going to court is traumatic for anyone at any age, but I have seen children in handcuffs in court getting yelled at by a judge. It's traumatic and trauma is never therapeutic. So we've got to make sure that we have judges who understand the science of child development, the science around brain development and who have compassion and who understand that there is a much better model for helping children than simply punishing them. Here's to restorative justice, you know. Exactly, here's to restorative justice, exactly, exactly. Can we dig in a little bit about what you mentioned? It kind of flew by, but it costs more to incarcerate women than men. What is going on? The issue for, for women is, is often related to their family roles, um, that there are children involved. There are women who may be the primary caretaker. Uh, so I think that we need to take that into account when we're looking at incarcerating women. We have a facility in Framingham. We also have the Western Massachusetts Regional Women's Facility out in Chicopee. And you've asked a really good question, and I don't know the answer as to the specifics as to why it's more expensive. And I'd like to know, and I'm gonna look into that. So I'm glad you asked the question. But I do know um, that, I mean, I'm a former social worker. 
we don't pay social workers $85,000 a year. You could hire, you could hire a full-time dedicated social worker for every single person who's incarcerated and it would be less expensive and they would have someone with them from nine to five, making sure that they have the services they need, that they get to their doctor's appointments, they have housing and all that. It's just we're doing just isn't cost effective and it doesn't work, but it's because too many people still believe in the tough on crime model and they they believe that punishment is effective and just and it's sometimes it's too much and it's actually counterproductive how do you change people's perspective about that partly that's part of why my campaign is basically an education campaign just letting people know what's happening because i don't believe that these numbers that i'm telling you are reflective of the will of the people I don't think this is what people want. And I know it's not what people in this district want. So once people find out, I mean, it takes it takes time. People talk all the time about whether the legislature is responsive to the will of the people or whether the governor is responsive to the will of the people. We've got to talk about whether our judiciary is responsive to the will of the people. And look what's happening at the federal level with the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, clearly contrary to the will of the people. And that's a really important issue and it's getting people more activated and hopefully We'll, we'll see some more positive changes. Something I have not understood in recent news is that given we had a very effective omnibus abortion bill just passed. Yes. Showing, you know, the will of people in Massachusetts is very clear. Um, clear, yep. And then we just saw a judge appointed who is anti-abortion and I'm perplexed. Did. What's we going did. on? Thank you so much for raising that issue. Um, the vote was five to three. One of the people who voted to confirm this anti-choice judge, Claudine Claudier, um, is the person I'm running against, incumbent Marilyn Petito Devaney. This was a really troubling vote. Uh, the, three, the three counselors who voted against it were Eileen Duff, Paul DiPaolo, and Terry Kennedy. And I can tell you that during the hearing, I mean, the, the, the issue was raised because she had supported um, anti-choice organizations, had given money, had served on boards. So there was a legitimate question. So she was asked repeatedly whether she supports the right to choose. So I'm pro-choice. Somebody asks me if I support the right to choose. You know what I say? Yes. Any other answer is a red flag. So here's what she said. It's hard for me to imagine under what scenario that particular question would come before a superior court judge. Well, here's the answer. I'm a lawyer. I looked it up. Massachusetts General Laws Chapter 112, Section 12R has something that we, we know of as judicial bypass. It just says if you're 15 or younger and you want an abortion, you have to have the consent of a parent or an adult guardian. And if you can't get that, there is only one remedy, and that's to go before a superior court judge. So superior court judges have everything in the world to do with abortion. That was just a false statement. And I will raise that the incumbent, the person I'm running against, Marilyn Petito Devaney, had said in trying to defend her vote, well, she told me that she would recuse herself in cases like that. She says that was part of a private conversation. But we all remember that Brett Kavanaugh told Susan Collins in private conversation that he would not vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's not good enough. If I had been there, I would have voted no, the vote would have been four to four, and the nomination would have failed because the lieutenant governor can break a tie, but not when she's serving as acting governor and Charlie Baker was out of the state.
Oh, wow. So it was that one vote. It was our governor's counselor who cast the deciding vote. And, you know, listeners will remember that during the Roe Act, Karen and I spent a lot of time talking to people in the podcast about judicial bypass. And the issue is there is judge shopping in our state. And what that means is, let's say I'm a social worker in a school, or let's say I'm running an after-school program, and a teenager comes to me and they're seeking an abortion and they do not feel safe telling their parents, so they're going to go to court. Well, I have to sit there and think about which judge are we going to go in front of? Because if the judge has a bias against abortion, and they're going to talk to a teenager and potentially force them to remain pregnant, force them to give birth, that judge's values really matter. So a lot of people who try to help are gonna look for a judge who will be at least impartial and not prejudiced against someone having the right to terminate a pregnancy. So it's really important. It's incredibly important. And many folks don't know that of the minors who who seek and receive an abortion in Massachusetts, it's one out of every four who gets authorization from a superior court judge, because as I'm sure you talked about, you know, they're kids who don't feel safe telling their parents. They don't have an adult guardian they can confide in. What they have is the rule of law. And we've got to make sure that we don't let the rule of law disappoint them. Yep. And it circles back to what you said about sometimes your parents aren't available because they're incarcerated. So, you know, everything ties together. And when we're looking at especially women in prison and also men who have close relationships with their children, where do the children go when the parents are incarcerated? Many of them end up in our foster care system. And Massachusetts does not have a glowing reputation for really taking care of all the children mm. who desperately need good care. I wanted to go back to something you said about pardons because I think it's come up a lot uh, you know, nationally with learning all about the people that uh, former President Trump has pardoned. Mm. But can you speak a little bit more about maybe the positive side of pardoning? Well, commutations and pardons are fall under the umbrella of clemency. And a commutation means that someone who has been sentenced can be released before the end of their sentence. And I'll give you an example where the incumbent, Marilyn Petito Devaney, who I'm running against, voted against a commutation where I absolutely would have voted yes. This is a woman named Deanne Hamilton. She had grown up with a lot of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. She became involved in drugs. She became involved with a man who was involved in drugs. And she was arrested when there were drugs found in his home. She was sentenced for a nonviolent drug offense to seven and a half years in prison. She rehabilitated herself and she applied for a commutation. And fortunately, there were enough members of the governor's council who voted yes so that she did receive the commutation. But my opponent, Marilyn Petito Devaney, voted no. And she said the reason was because she had too long of a criminal record. Well, that's where my experience makes the difference. Because I've been a public defender for 15 years, I'm pretty good at telling uh, whether someone has rehabilitated themselves and whether things that they did earlier in life are, are going to come back or whether they've really been addressed. So that's a, that's a really good example of a commutation. And I have an example for a pardon, which again, my opponent, Marilyn Petito Devaney, voted against this pardon. I absolutely would have voted yes. This was a young man named Thomas Schoolcraft. As a young teen, he had committed a series of breakings and enterings. And one day he broke into a woman's home and he he came upon an elderly woman and he realized that what he was doing was terrible and he had to stop. And so he confessed and he received a sentence of probation. He didn't have any committed time and he completely rehabilitated himself. He got a GED, 
He got a bachelor's degree and he got a master's in criminal justice from Boston University. And then what he wanted to do was take all of his knowledge and his training and his experience and work to help the kids who were the way he had been, right? Who is better for that job than him? But he couldn't get hired because he had this conviction on his record. So he sought a pardon. And with a pardon, you're, you're absolved of the, of the guilt. And so fortunately, um, there were enough people in the governor's council that he did get his pardon, but my opponent voted against the pardon. And the reason was, she said, he had committed too many crimes when he was younger and she didn't think it mattered um, that he did those things when he was so young. Well, I think it matters tremendously because we know with the science of child and youth development and brain development, that people just don't have the same decision-making skills as a teenager as they do over the age of 25. And so it isn't right to hold them to those standards. So I'm very thankful that he got his pardon and I'm, I'm glad to report that he's doing very, very well. But I absolutely would have voted for it. Question I would ask your opponent, I'll ask you the same question. What does it mean for you to think about people being able to rehabilitate? Well, I think, you know, having having spent as much time as I have working with people who need public defenders, these are low income folks. Um, I like to say my clients are not from all walks of life. You know, they're not the elites. They don't have money. They don't have powerful connections. And what they have is the rule of law and whatever has happened to them in their lives. Our government still gives them an attorney to advocate for them, which I think is a very powerful message to send to those folks. And I can tell you that they want better lives. They want to be able to have a decent paying job, have a stable home, provide for their children, and not be involved in crime. So it's really a question of whether they have the support that they need in order to achieve those goals. And there are a lot of folks who, for whom in many ways, the criminal justice system works. They go in, they're incarcerated, they get involved in treatment and programs. I've had clients tell me that they, they're getting help they've never had before in their lives and how much it means to them. I think it's really important to be open to the idea that once someone is rehabilitated, they should have the opportunity to be released. And I'm not saying we just release everybody. There is a process. And in fact, I would, I would call for the adoption of the recommendations of the Mass Bar Association's task force on clemency, which called for speedy hearings. You get a hearing that you get no or speedy notice. So you're notified whether you qualify for a hearing within six months. Then you have the hearing within six months. Then there's a decision within six months. And it also would establish a right to counsel so that someone could have the advice of an attorney, which is essential, and also the right to present witnesses and evidence on their behalf. So I think we really need to step up on, look at look what Connecticut did last year, over a thousand pardons and we had zero. Connecticut is clearly doing something that is possible and we should be doing that too. And do you, you feel that the role of the governor's council can do that? Absolutely, because they are the ones who have the final say and who gets to be a judge or a parole board member. And they are governor's counselors. They counsel the governor. So the governor's council can collectively say, hey, we need nominees who are going to be receptive to commutations and pardons. And if you're not sending us those nominees, we're not going to approve them. Excellent point. This, the district of third Massachusetts is huge, absolutely yes. huge. It is, it's huge. How, how, have you thought through how you'll communicate with the voters in 
that district? Yes, absolutely. I will maintain a website so that people can find out what's happening on the governor's council. And by the way, I strongly encourage folks to watch the hearings. They're available online. You can also come in person and just find out what's happening on the governor's council. I have a pretty good network throughout the district and always be here for folks who have concerns and they want to know what's happening on the governor's council. We'll find out more about you. How did they get in touch? MaraDolan.com. It's M-A-R-A-D-O-L-A-N.com. It's easy to remember my name. Mara Healy for governor, Mara Dolan for governor's <laughs> council. But I'm M-A-R-A-D-O-L-A-N. I'd love to hear from folks. I'm in, This race has been incredibly positive and uh, we've raised issues that hadn't been raised before, raised awareness of the governor's council. And uh, I, I love hearing from folks and hearing about the concerns and I'm constantly hearing from new people and they raise new issues. And it's just, it's wonderful to have gotten this conversation started. And of course, I'm asking for folks to vote for me on or before September 6th. And if you look at your ballot, it doesn't say governor's council. It says, just says counselor, counselor, Mara Dolan for counselor. Sounds good. Thank you. Really good. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoy it. And I look forward to seeing the link and posting it and sharing it with folks. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 